As we get done with you, my friend, you will know how to walk all the way in to the perfect plan of God for your life on purpose. Just because you want to go in there. <laughs> Hallelujah. So since the teacher is here, this is a morning to tune your ears. Tune them. Let's take it a step further. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1, uh, Romans. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, and of course, the word therefore means uh, based on something I'm already said, I'm about to say this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, based on what I've already said, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is first that good and then acceptable and finally that absolutely perfect will of God. Now this much we know about this. That somehow the offering of my body as a living sacrifice results in not conformity to this world, but transformation by the renewing of my mind to find out first what is the good and then the acceptable and the absolute perfect will of God. Luke, Mark 4 said it this way. He said, 30, 60, and 100 fold. Good, acceptable, perfect. The question is, what good, acceptable, and perfect will is he talking about? We know he's speaking of not conforming to the world, but transforming through the renewing of the mind. So we know that he's talking about not thinking like the world thinks anymore, but transformation and renewing our mind to think like God and to think like the Word thinks. So we know he is talking about transformation through the Word of God, conforming to it. But I also know through meditation that he has extended this a step further, and when he talks of good and acceptable and perfect will of God, he's talking about the good, the acceptable, the perfect will of God for our personal lives. Some people find good, and they never leave it. Others find acceptable. They never leave it. But others find perfect. There's something in me that won't live, just won't live with good, won't live with acceptable. If I see more in the Word of God, this thing in me won't rest until we have it. It just can't. Many people find good, acceptable, perfect. Not because many of them are not craving and hungry for God, but because the enemy comes in with deception and stops them, and they don't know how to go any further. And there's no worse death that I can think of than a slow death of living this life, craving and hungering and thirsting after God, and never, never being taught or coming to the place where it is quenched. To me, that's, that's a slow, 
horrible death. Please, please, give me my day in court. If I fail, please don't let it be because the truth was never preached to me. If I fail, let it be my decision. Give me my day in court. If I fail, let it be because somebody preached it to me, showed me what to do, showed me how to find his perfect will, and then I rejected it. But don't let me fail because somebody put me in a holding tank and stripped me of truth. Good, acceptable, and perfect will that he's talking about in two realms. Number one, your personal transformation to the Word of God. About healing, about righteousness, about your walk with God, about worship, about praise, about faith. All the basic things of faith. Your total transformation to them into peace. And the second good, acceptable, and perfect will he's talking about is for your personal lives. How do you know, Brother Robinson? I know because a dog has fleas. I mean, is there a Bible in front of me? How can I not know? He goes on to say in the third verse, For I say through the grace given unto me, now you know what the basics of grace is. The basics of grace is the unmeritable, unearnable favor of God which has been shed or bestowed on you and I. And Paul's about to make a statement based on this unmeritable, unearnable favor that he received. He says, For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that's among you. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think soberly according to God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Now, in context, is he not saying that you and I are an individual member in a vast body called the body of Christ? We are members one of another of the same body, having gifts differing one from another. Not by our choosing, but by the unmeritable, unearnable favor of God in eternity's times past when he separated you and I to our prospective cause according to predestination. See, he gave us an office to fulfill in his body by grace. As a matter of fact, every man, woman, and child ever born in Alaska, ever born in India, ever born in Africa, in times past, his perfect will for their life was to fulfill their perspective call in the body of Christ. So when he says somehow the offering of your body a living sacrifice will not only result in confirmation not to the world but transformation to God, he was talking good, acceptable, perfect will in the areas of your individual call in a vast body called the body of Christ. Now, Paul gave some advice in that area. It took me seven years to understand that advice. 
then suddenly my lightning quick mind clave to it and immediately seven years it suddenly dawned on me when Paul says I say to you according to the grace given to me the unmeritable unearnable favor that was bestowed on me he said I'm about to talk to you out of this grace he said you ought not think of yourself more highly than you ought but you need to think soberly according to God's dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now what he was saying is this. I have an apostolic office. And I was separated to my office that differs from yours by the grace of God. So I have grace differing according to the measure God has dealt to me. So I'm about to speak to you out of the grace which was given to me which is my apostolic office. You ought not think of yourself more highly than you ought. In other words, it was unmeritable, unearnable favor, you outfit. So why are you going to think you're something? Because you're the one up here preaching. I'm no more nothing than you're no more nothing sitting in your chair. No more than helps in governments are just as important as the apostle to the workings of miracles, to the teacher, to the pastor. Every one of them is important. And no man ought to think of himself more highly than not because you didn't choose your calling. He did by his unmeritable, unearnable grace. So chunk your pride and humble yourself. Your office was given to you by God. Hallelujah. So he says, you and I ought not think of ourselves more highly, but he gave us the standard to think according to. He said, you need to think soberly. Soberly, according to, here's the standard. God's dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now here's the standard we're supposed to think according to. God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Sometimes we get so messed up. I asked them that seemed to be somewhat among them what a measure of faith was. And they said, well, we're not sure whether it's a measure or the measure. And I'm thinking, what difference it makes? Can't make either one work. But who would dare to call Jesus Christ a liar? And when he moved through Paul and said that you and I have received the measure of faith, this old boy would be the last one on the face of this earth to tell Jesus, I did not receive my measure of faith. I did. But I asked them, I said, what is a measure of faith? We're not sure if it's A or the measure. I said, but what is it? What is it and why does he call it a measure? I mean, did Jesus have all faith and we only have a measure? In fact, he's talking about the same things he did in the 13th chapter of Corinthians when he says, we know in part. That which is perfect will come. We'll know as we're known. We only have a single part in the body of Christ to fulfill. You're not going to be able to operate in my vineyard. No more than I can operate in yours. And I won't even understand how yours operates unless maybe I'm an apostle that I had to establish all of these ministries. But below an apostle, I may not even know how yours operates. I have no business over in your vineyard. That's why he gave you helps or governments or teacher or whatever. And he gave you mine. I might operate in the workings of miracles, but he may not have separated you to that office. 
So how do I know how you feel? Well, we all know in part that one day we'll understand the whole operation. So I can tell you why he called it the measure of faith. If you can handle this, this is very deep. Pay attention. This is very deep. I learned. I found out in the second or third grade <laughs> that if you take a pie and you divide it up into three measures, <laughs> that that pie consists now of three measures that make one whole. And each measure is one-third of the whole. Now, I can get deeper than that if you can bear it. This is deep calleth to deep. Now, this is really heavy. If you divide a pie in half, <laughs> I used to wonder, you know, why the figures, when they got bigger, 154th, the piece got littler. <laughs> That's the first thing I wondered about as a little guy. I can remember wondering, if the number got bigger, why did the piece get littler? <laughs> I can divide a pie in half. And it consists of two measures, of one half each. And the two measures make one whole. Well, I got news for the devil. The body of Christ consists of a multi-multi-measure. And each one of you fill one of those measures. But all the measures working together makes one whole which is a devil-stomping, mountain-moving body of Christ when it functions together. So I have mine, you have yours, helps governments, counselors, other diversities, tongues, intercessions, levels of intercessions, different measures, different equippings for your office. But all of you have been delivered a grace. You have been separated to a measure in the body of Christ. And then you have been given a measure of faith. That is, God has instilled in your spirit the faith, enough faith, to fulfill your call, not mine, yours. The measure of faith. You got it, buddy. You can finish your course. He's guaranteed you it because he has deposited it on the inside of your spirit. Hallelujah. Oh, that makes me happy to know that I have enough faith. That's what you're going to be judged by. Well, Jesus, what? You little glorified flesh creature. Jeans and I didn't have enough money to go to Mexico. He said, now wait a minute. Did I tell you to go? Yes. He said, you're right, I did. Why didn't you go? Money. He said, you mean your measure didn't include enough to believe it in? Oh. <laughs> Ouch. And it's severally according to every man's ability that God has gave you the measure. He gave you the faith to fulfill your call. That's why some of you try to jump out there and operate above it. You can't. You don't have the faith. You have the measure of faith for your call. So the faster you find out what your call is, 
the faster that faith is going to begin to work for you. In other words, when you're flowing with God, you're not swimming upstream anymore. You're swimming down. And you can just thank Cadillac and you go home, three of them will be in your driveway. <laughs> so let's study this measure a little bit closer. If I've been delivered the measure of faith, and God knows I have, and I've been delivered a separation by God and by His grace to an office that's different than yours, having then offices differing one from another, and why do so many people flounder around, wander around almost aimlessly, defeated, one place to another? There's a very small percentage in the body of Christ that actually fulfills their ministries to full potential. And why is this? God deposited that measure of faith on the inside of your spirit in seed form. It's just like any seed that's planted. Along with your rebirth, when God deposited the incorruptible seed on the inside of your spirit, my friend, it carried a diagram and a program like any seed does. And if you was to take a kernel of corn and crack it open, you may not see a stalk of corn in there. But I can guarantee you the image that that corn seed carries is for a whole stalk and then several ears of corn on the stalk. And all of that is programmed and diagrammed on the inside of that seed. When you were born again of incorruptible seed like any other kind of seed, it carries the program as it's deposited in your spirit for not only what your ministry is to become, but everything he's called you to do, and included in that measure of faith is to receive any of the blessings that has been redeemed for you through the cross. That's all included in that measure of faith. Not only your personal call is in there, but everything Jesus has made provisions for is in there. It's all that you can believe it all in. Deposited. But the thing is, like any seed, it's deposited in, in seed form. And we're getting around to the basics of prayer. He said seed was sown on stony ground. On seed was sown on good ground. Produced 30, 60, 100 fold. He says it was it's sown on wayside ground. It's sown on rocky ground. And in many of those instances it was choked out. Took no root. Scorched and died. Thorn seeds grew up, choked. And finally the good ground produced 30 and 60, 100 fold. That is good, acceptable, and perfect will one more time. But yet the word of God and that incorruptible seed and that measure has been deposited on the inside of you. So if your ground is parched and dry, it's very hard for the seed to germinate. It can do very little in your life. Very little. If you're caught up in the world and the cares of the world or lust for other things and the seed of riches, it chokes the call of God out. can do very little. Very, very little. But there is a way that you can throw water on your seed. And of course, the twin sister to throwing water on the seed is meditation of his word. Meditation, meditation, meditation. But the twin sister to that, again, if you believe on me, as the scripture says, out of your innermost being or your belly shall flow rivers of living water. How would you like to learn how to water your seed on a daily basis? To cultivate it and pull the weeds out. Huh? 
He likened the Holy Spirit to water. Because every time that you pray in tongues, he says, Oh, when I speak in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth. That you're actually throwing water on, germinating, cultivating, nurturing the seed so that the image that's in it will come out. And that, my friend, includes your call. Can you prove it? Does a dog have fleas? Can a fish swim? <laughs> Notice he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, therefore. When you see the word therefore, you'd better see what it's there for. And what it means is what he's about to say to you. It's totally based on something he's already said. So when he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, he means when I ask you to offer your body a living sacrifice, I wouldn't ask you to do that had I not already told you how to do it in a previous chapter. And that's what the word therefore means. I beseech you, therefore, go on, offer your body. Then receive transformation. Go on, offer your body a living sacrifice. Good, acceptable, perfect, fulfill your grace. Fulfill your call. You have the measure of faith. Go on, do it. Offer your body a living sacrifice. You'll experience all these things. So when I see the word therefore, that makes me want to go back and dig into the other chapters to find out what he based that incredible statement on that I could offer my body a living sacrifice based on what? I've tried to do it in the flesh. I've never tried to give something up in the flesh. I just decided not to be mad at him. It comes back on you sometime. You ever notice that? There's a better way to do this. I'd like to know. Hallelujah. Well, let's go back to our old friend, Romans 8. Glory to God. So I just can't quit sinning. Yes, you can. No, I can't. You don't live in my body. Yeah, you can. You just think you can't. I can't quit smoking. Yes, you can. No, I really can't. No, you really can. If you can't, then the whole word of God's a lie. <laughs> now, you may have to build yourself up some. You know, because your emotions are, are so weak that it demands pacification. But you can build yourself to a place where you can. And at the same time, you work in the plan of God. You can. I'm telling you, you can. In fact, you can do anything for God, every one of you. If you don't let the devil take you out. And he's after that seed. He wants you setting somewhere fruitless the rest of your life. He's after your seed. If I was you, I wouldn't give it to him. <laughs> Amen? I wouldn't give it to him. So along with the mysteries that we're praying in the Holy Ghost, what else are we praying? See, so what else are we praying? I go to verse 21. He says, Therefore the creature, or creation, itself also shall be delivered from the bondage. And this is Romans 8. Romans 8, 21. Because the creature or creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption 
into the glorious liberty of the children of God, which is to say that all creation is crying out to God in a form of intercession. And she's crying out because of her imperfections. Every atom that's been subjected to imperfection by the fall of Adam is crying out before God to be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Or 22, he goes on to say, for the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, us that's been born again, filled the Holy Ghost, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for this entire adoption process of all creation, our corruptible bodies. He said to be redeemed, the adoption to be made complete, to be witted at the redemption of our bodies. But meanwhile, while we're in an imperfect creation and while we're in a body that is yet capable of sinning, he gave us the Holy Spirit to help our weaknesses and our infirmities. And this is what he's talking about in 26 when he says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, our weaknesses in the flesh, our inabilities to produce results because of the limitations imposed on us by this body. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts, this is the Holy Spirit, he knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know all things work together for good to them that love God who are called according to his purpose. Now, Let's explore what the Holy Spirit is doing in us when he's helping our infirmities. See, we want to be delivered immediately from the disease and immediately from poverty and all these things. And God wants to deliver you too. But he wants to do much more than that in your life. He wants to go on past these things and work God's personal call for you. And this is why he says, "What he that searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit. And that word mind breaks down to mean the plan of the Spirit. And it's the same plan that God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus sat down in eternity's times past and planned the whole creation and redemption. He says, he that searches the heart knows the entire plan of God. Why did he say mind? Because every generation has a different facet to the plan. So you may have a plan for the entire day, and you'll start out with your list. But for each hour, you have a different mind for that hour than the entire plan. So each generation is working towards the entire plan. So when he says, he that searches the heart, he knows the entire plan of God, but he personalized it by saying he knows what is the mind of the Spirit because you're the one that's involved now, and it's his mind for your personal life for this generation. So, I mean, he goes into your heart to search it, already have been with God. Already knowing when God planned creation, the entire plan, but the Holy Spirit knows more than that. He knows the mind of God towards this generation, towards Tulsa, towards Union Street, towards your individual life. 
And he is the only one that is qualified to make successful intercession for your life according to the will of God, which is where you fit in on his plan, which is his mind for you. This means I cannot slip up here on Wednesday night and pray two hours in the Holy Ghost. Sneak in here and pray those two hours or so and worship for the last 30 minutes or so. That you can't sneak in and pray in tongues. Well, I don't know what I'm saying. He does. He knows your ministry to the end of your life. You have a great call. He knows it. He's the only one that knows it. He requires you to walk by faith. You may have a feeling of the end of your ministry, but your computer wouldn't hold all the in particulars between now and then. In fact, if he told some of you what he wanted you to do at the end of your life, you'd go, oh my God, nobody could do that. So he that searches the heart knows the entire mind and plan of God, and he's making intercession for you as an individual. You can't pray those two hours. He won't work in transforming you to the Word and work the personal plan of God in your life. That's why he can boldly make the statement, verse 28, and that we know all things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. You're not flowing with his purpose, which is your call in his plan as an individual, then all things cannot work together for the good for you. You will flounder around in good and acceptable. There's whole denominations that's been captured by the devil in only the good that they've remained saved and they have kept a testimony and served God that I am saved. That's all that they do. Is good acceptable? There's perfect. But all things will not work together for your good unless you are attempting one phase at a time to work his plan for your life. There's no such thing as passiveness and sitting in church and doing nothing and being happy. You know, you'll go back to the world to supply or satisfy that hunger you have inside. You'll try to kill it or you'll feed it. Then some of you in the past, you've been aboard trains. You weren't going anywhere. That's why you left. You know, you knew ten years from now you'd be doing the same thing. You hang around here. I'm going to whip you back into prayer every time you get out. A lot of us don't have enough self-discipline to do it because the things of this life are just a little heavier. I'll keep whipping you in. And why? Because I want all things to begin to flow together for the good to them that love God and call according to his purpose. What's his purpose? The culmination of all things. Does he have a plan towards that end? Yes, all creation is crying and travailing for it. And us that have the first fruits, we're also groaning inside of our righteous spirit. And he's helping our infirmities. We're so limited, yet we have the Holy Spirit. He has the whole plan, not only the whole blueprint, but he has your life in that plan so he can work your life according to his purpose. You mean praying in tongues is a key? Yes, my friend. It is a, it isn't all of them, but it is a major key to turn the Holy Spirit loose into your future. You ever bought futures? You ever bought stock? 
You ever bought a future? I will buy $10,000 on the futures on corn stock. The reason is because corn may go way down, way, way down, and I'll still get the price I paid now. That's a future. When you pray in the Holy Ghost, you're purchasing futures. The Holy Spirit is running out ahead of you and working things together for the good to them that love him are called according to his purpose. Why do you think the devil got so many people out of prayer? Go look at them and see what they're doing now. <laughs> now let's talk about this leadership for a little bit. Most of us have the uh, concept that the leadership of the Spirit is, uh, is the way that God would come and attach himself to us and want to lead us in every little aspect as though we had no free will. And what you hear some people talk that they don't even buy a loaf of bread. As the Holy Spirit told them what loaf to buy and they don't go out and get in their car unless he told them to. They don't do anything unless they told him to. And so we attempt to be spiritual but let me tell you what spirituality is. Spirituality is a man who has been seasoned in the fruit of the Spirit, in the long sufferings and the forgiveness and peace and righteousness and understanding. Well, doesn't God lead you? Sure, He leads me by the Spirit. He talks to me all the time. But He talks to me about things pertaining to the Spirit. He doesn't care, you know, if I go out. And he'll talk. I get on the golf course. He doesn't talk to me much. You know, if I'm going to make that hole in one or anything. How he says anything. In fact, he messes me up. Somebody yells four, and I'm off in Jude. <laughs> Point four, yeah. <laughs> you know, so sometimes we get into a super leadership, and the problem with that is most of us, are so immature, we're such emotional creatures that we can't sort out anything. So we get led off into the wild blue yonder in our lives and they're mature very far. But when I begin praying in the Holy Ghost in those early days, not a whole lot, seasons. Sometimes I'd lock up for, for hours, six, seven hours a day out on the field preaching. Then other times I wouldn't get to pray for a month or two hardly. Then other times... I'd pray an hour or two a day, and it just fluctuated all the time until God taught me a most valuable lesson. I was condemned half the time because I didn't pray much last week. Is God going to use me this week? And the most amazing thing to me is one time I went two or three months without hardly praying at all, and I got out there and he used me just as strong as he did when I was praying. I thought, I'm confused. <laughs> Why are you doing this? And that's when he taught me one of the most valuable lessons. God doesn't fellowship very much with the cubicle hours that you spend locked away in the prayer closet. In other words, you think, well, if I go at between 7 and 8 every morning and lock myself in that cubicle of time, and glory to God, hallelujah, and then at 8 o'clock you come out and go on your way and you feel real good about the day. But then Thursday goes around, something happens Friday morning, you don't make it, so you feel condemned that day. Well, I didn't have prayer this morning. The fellowship that he has with your person is not with them four cubicle hours you spent in the closet. What he fellowships with is the change that the prayer produced in your life. If you only prayed one day last year and it produced a little change, he just comes in and fellowships with it. He don't condemn you for the times you didn't. So this is strictly up to you. 
He lays the reward out ahead of you, but he loves you anyway. That's the same thing with fasting. When you esteem it no longer a sacrifice, you'll quit bragging about it. Because he's not, he's not fellowshipping with your sacrifice. Well, I sacrificed and went without food 40 days. He doesn't delight in sacrifices. He delights in obedience. However, he will fellowship with what the fasting produced in your life in the way of change. So he comes along and says, wow, look at this change. And he cleaves to you and fellowships with you over the change. He wasn't impressed with your sacrifice. So when you quit esteeming it as a sacrifice or proud of your cubicle hours of prayer, you quit running around bragging about them because the only thing God fellowships with the change it produces and he'll take any prayer time you can give him. So in those early days, I was praying along, as we wind down, <laughs> praying and preaching in halls. In early days, slept in them. You know, fire marshal would run us out. Sometimes I'd spend a day in the car praying. Hadn't a time, but just working the plan of God and didn't know it. Kept praying in the Holy Ghost. Say, how did this leadership come? I'll tell you how it come. You can't miss it. Because you keep praying in the Holy Ghost, all of a sudden the seed germinates. And pretty soon you can see what kind of seed is coming out. And, and that comes in the form of he will instill direction in your spirit like if you're supposed to go and do a work in Mexico, and pretty soon it'll get dropped in there and it comes out of the seed. And you're going, Masalaka, the more you pray, it waters and grows till this, the feeling isn't just a passing, wimpy thing that, well, I'm not sure. I'll go counsel with 35 people. If you're not sure, don't go, because this thing will take you over and consume you until eventually, if you keep praying, you can't think or even do or hardly work or anything else about it until finally you got to pack your bag and then money doesn't matter, nothing matters. You just have to quench that craving because that direction will come on you and stay and get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger until you can't help but walk in the direction of it. So you won't miss it unless you get out and get carnal and you'll miss everything. He'll love you. It's been a long time since God told me what pair of shoes to wear, what car to take. However, the other day in the office, I opened the curtain, I was in prayer, and I opened the curtain and didn't know how to pull it up, didn't know how to get it down. Worked on it for about 15 minutes, and I finally just sat down in my chair and the sun was beating in the window. I finally said, I give up. I kicked back in the chair and I said, God, God, that curtain. And he says, why don't you pull one string at a time? And I went, oh, come on. I went, and it goes, whoop. <laughs> I go, my God. <laughs> but generally, your wife can tell you what suit people's wearing these days. <laughs> so I was praying in the Holy Ghost and praying and and, and during that time, he told me what to do and some fasting, and I entered into phase two. And about the time I entered into phase two, we started having camp meetings. And our camp meetings were 14, 16 months old, and they were running 1,400 people all over Oregon. I mean, they'd come in for the camp meetings. Little Medford, Oregon, way out in the middle of nowhere. 
who's doing the camp meeting was having a good time and then I got invited up and to preach through a, a district up near LA and and that's where I first run into Bob Yanny and invited him out to the center. Well, I just entered into phase two. God was starting to use me where people were falling out in the crowd and getting miracles and everything, you know. I was sure elated about it. And I had heard rumors about Bob Yanny. You ever heard Bob Yanny, Bob Yanny, Bob Yanny, blah, 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 blah. You know, you hear it so much that finally, he's a Rama teacher and he's just taking grace over. Just took it over. And you hear it now, Bob Yanny, Bob Yanny, Bob Yanny. And I said, ah, you know, nobody could be that good, you know. And so, so finally, I went to this meeting where I'd preached at the church and Bob was preaching there. So the preacher come and got me and brought me over in the same area and Bob was ministering. So I go in. Come on, mister. <laughs> I look like an inflated Santa Claus. So Bob gets up and he begins to exhort and expound and open the word. And I go, and by the time he was done, I looked like a deflated Santa Claus. I just conformed to the chair. I was, we went out to eat, and I, I don't say much generally. I mean, kind of. Bob Yandian is really, really, basically shy. He is basically shy. So he wasn't saying nothing. I wasn't saying nothing. I sat here eating because I was impressed. And here, Brother Beach was trying to tell him about my ministry. He's going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So he finally came to our camp meeting, and it's right at that time that the desire became so intense from praying and fasting in my spirit to move to Tulsa. I kept hearing all these rumors. Doctor Stewart is saying forty-nine percent are staying in Tulsa, fifty-one are leaving the Ramograds. And man, it was automatically tar and feathering if you graduated Raymond stayed. I mean, it was horrible. And then here I was wanting to move to Tulsa. Because the Spirit was working it in me so strong. And so I'm thinking, no, it's got to be the flesh. So I'd put it down. It'd grow back. I'd put it down. It'd grow back. You can't get away from it. That you've got to pray it out. Because the devil will give you a substitute. He'll give it to you, boy. And you'll get out there and you won't be working as perfectly. I'd put it down. It'd grow back. I even went to Portland and rented a building. Because we're going to move our headquarters to Portland, Oregon. And I had it rented and everything. I had to cancel it until finally laboring all day in the Holy Ghost and praying. Finally, he spoke to me something that really shook me up. And this was just about the time I entered into phase two. He said, son, if you do not move like I'm telling you, it will cost you. Or no, he said, if you miss me, it will cost four years of your ministry. So Bob came. I just entered phase two. I was ecstatic like a child. I was calling people up in groups. He was telling me what was wrong with them. And I'd go, and sometimes the whole group would go, pow. At that first morning, Bob Yandy had come out. He insisted that I teach. He insisted it. So he came out and sat down. He's looking down his Greek nose. You know, and I don't mean his nose. It's Armenian. I mean his studious Greek nose and me. He had a, a yellow pad, and he got all comfortable. I mean, that yellow pad looked this long. His pencil looked this big. Just waiting for me to say something. The word was fading in and out. Fear was gripping me. My vocal cords were stretched tighter than a little child's. And I was, eh, good evening. We're going to open up here with Roman. That's my days of intimidation. I told you about it. 
And something happened. I don't know. I squeezed through the message. And pretty soon I started him writing. He started writing. And I seen him write some notes. I thought he must have liked that. Oh, and then pretty soon. And furthermore, if you'd like to know anything, you know, he was writing. Then the Holy Ghost fell. You got this wrong. You got that wrong. Then hurry up. Ah, pow. The whole group would fall. Oh, Bob, he'd look, and another group was wiped out. He'd look. Another bunch would come up, and I'd tell them what was wrong with them. Ah, and they would get wiped out. We went to dinner. He was real quiet. And he says, tell me something, Brother Roberson. I said, yes. What do you attribute that anointing to? Does it just show up, or was that a special uh, sovereign move? I said, oh, no, he shows up like that all the time now. He was quiet for a moment. He says, what do you attribute that to? <laughs> we traded tapes off and pretty soon I get this telephone call God was warning me Grace was the goingest most powerful biggest church in Tulsa and all I'd ever done was crawled around on my hands and knees in halls in Oregon and I get this call Brother Roberson would like you to come and preach at Grace and I go <laughs> and I was reduced to a quivering mass of nerves muttering things like his mouth honey <laughs> he met me we were having dinner he says I've got to tell you something he says look at me look at me I looked at him he says God told me you're supposed to move to Tulsa and I said I know it <laughs> I said I know it and so I, I moved to Tulsa because I could not get away from the leadership of the Spirit. Then in a, in a year's time, I found myself preaching on the platform with just six, seven months before I would have paid $1,000 to hold their sweaty coats in the back room. Now I was coming out on the platform. Our tape sales went from five and 600 a month, and they hit a $20,000 mark in the first six months that we get here or so, or a year, 20,000 in a month. Hallelujah. So what I'm saying is I spent many, many dusty hours, many times in the car praying, going anywhere he'd send me, working day and night, not caring. I get the biggest kick out of these preachers that come out and say, well, where am I going to preach? And they get mail and they start soliciting churches. They want believers to listen to what they got to say and then pay them. And here they sat there trying to believe God when the whole world's going to hell. If you want to get paid, go preach. Yeah. Where at? Skid Row's waiting. Yeah. Well, where else should I go? Other street corners and other cities. Why don't you go get a hall and run an ad in the paper? Get some lost in. But he's not going to pay you unless you're fulfilling your call or working towards it. So prayer and the leadership of the Spirit is by offering your body a living sacrifice. He'll work the plan of God in your personal life by creating a strong anointing. It says, concerning those that seduce you, you have no need that any man teach you, but that anointing that you received of him is truth and cannot lie, and it'll teach you all things. You'll increase that anointing stronger and stronger until his leadership will grow, not only in direction, but grow in call. In other words, my God, I feel like a teacher. I feel like it, and I see miracles in my spirit. They've never gone away. 
In all my years of ministry, I see them. They've never gone away. You won't have to wonder what he called me to do. It'll grow on you like a tree if you will remain constant in prayer and worship and meditation of his word. Don't go to a church where they don't whip you back into prayer. You need it. Does people find it without it? Sure they do. You can have anything that you want from God if you can believe him for it. I don't care how you get there to believe in him. And you can do anything for God and go anywhere if he sends you and you have faith. It doesn't matter how you got there. But I'm telling you biblical scriptures and principles how to take you from where you are on purpose. You fail your outfit to where he said you could be. We're part of a team. And by golly, people have stopped coming to the person because they said, well, there's more to things than just praying. Oh, you listen to me. By the time you deliver yourself enough from flesh that you're going to work in the programs and not cause us any problems, <laughs> you're going to be like the guy that asked Sambach. You think God will ever use me? He said, ever use you? My God, he'll work you to death. <laughs> there ain't enough of us to go around. Would you please hurry? But remain faithful. And when a direction begins to come, my God, take it. Go on, work. Work in this office, this office, this facet of the church. Take it. Present yourselves. Come on. Begin to work into it. You can always tell people that are building their career in the kingdom of God as adverse to those who offer their gift as a servant. They'll bounce around to churches. If you don't exalt them, they don't want to come. Do not want to come. Because they're building their ministry instead of the body. They said, I don't blame you for not wanting to be used. I want you to be used. And if you think you're not going to be, buddy, you better hang on. Just remain faithful a little longer. You'll say, my God, use you. He'll work you to death. But right now, you need to have enough faith to direct your energy in prayer for the present time.